Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Immerse yourself in the next generation of blockbuster entertainment at Universal Studios Florida. Journey through legendary worlds of incredible heroes at Universal's Islands of Adventure. And live the carefree island oh, life. I love the carefree life. At Universal's Volcano Bay, an all-new water theme park. For your next vacation, get your ticket to thrills and relaxation at www.universalorlando.com. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. Turn this football season into a saga of epic wins by joining a Yahoo Fantasy Football League. Yahoo has spent the offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. So when you play fantasy football on Yahoo, the wins are as epic as the season is long. But to get in on the wins, you have to get in on the season. Don't miss your chance to play on the best fantasy football platform on the planet. Join a league now at yahoo.com slash binge mode fantasy football. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. These chapters contain the first real engagement between Ron and Lavender Brown. The wonderful Lavender Brown, by the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who knows what might be discussed. So if that's not your thing, please check out the Ringer NBA show. So much going on. No dead bunnies there. No dead bunnies. People care about each other's pets. <laughs> Ringer NBA show. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know how Professor Snape looks in Grand's attire. Looks great. I think so, too. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Why? Why do they affect me like that? Am I just... There's nothing to do with weakness, said Professor Lupin sharply, as though he had read Harry's mind. The Dementors affect you worse than the others because there are horrors in your past that the others don't have. A ray of wintry sunlight fell across the classroom, illuminating Lupin's gray hairs and the lines on his young face. Dementors among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished explaining that he perceives very little aura it's around me. Not a lot of aura. Very every time, <laughs> Every time you disagree with me, I'm just not getting any aura here. <laughs> very little receptivity to the resonances of the future. It's sad, really. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer. Your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, welcome. How nice to see you in the physical world at last. Sit, my children, sit. It's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're a Mooney, a Wormtail, a Padfoot, or a Prongs, three of those are great. One of, <laughs> one of those is tough. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Five points, five stars. For Binge Mode, please. Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is a great place to unfog the future together. Boy, is it. Let's look at those tea leaves. 
On yesterday's Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how fear shapes the first five chapters of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third book in this beloved saga. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters six through ten. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those Azkaban chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. It's a wide canon. (laughs) Taking the entire series into account from the moment we swill the dregs in our teacups. So broaden your minds, my dears. That's right. Allow your eyes to see past the mundane because it's time to head to North Tower. Mal, after you've broken your first cup, would you be so kind as to select one of the blue powdered ones? <laughs> That's one of the three predictions that <laughs> Professor Trelawney makes correct in her career. I'm rather attached to the pink. I'm also rather attached to plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Azkaban Chapter 6 through 10 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine Plot, the Hogwarts Express. Chapter 6. Talons and tea leaves. Dun, 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 dun. Draco. Huge dick. Delights in being a dick and in telling the school that the famous Harry Potter fainted in the presence of a Dementor. And it's really getting on Harry's nerves. Actually, it really does bother him. (laughs) (laughs) Alas, there is something to distract from Draco. Classes. Every now and then we remember that they're actually at school. (laughs) This is actually one of the great, this is the first great going to class runs of the story. It really is. It really is. Our trio has its first divination class with the eccentric, is putting it mildly. She's an, she's an icon. <laughs> the iconic eccentric <laughs> Professor Trelawney, a bespectacled loon who <laughs> reads the tea leaves and sees the grim, a death omen in Harry's future. McGonagall tells Harry, don't worry about this. Yeah. Focus on winning me some money. <laughs> <laughs> I need my, I need my prized seeker in game form. <laughs> No Keep your mind on the game. I don't need you pulling up short because you're afraid you're going to die. I need you going all out for that snitch. <laughs> Divination, McGonagall says, is a highly imprecise and possibly bullshit branch of magic. <laughs> and also, by the way, predicting a student's death is Trelawney's go-to bit every year to open a new term. Ron and Hermione get in a tiff. They're fighting a lot this book. Yeah, lot that's how you know. That's how you know that there's something there. <laughs> that's exactly right. And Hermione's ability to seemingly get to way too many classes is beginning to perplex her friends. In Hagrid's debut Care of Magical Creatures class, he introduces the students to the Hippogriff, a proud beast, part yeah. horse, part eagle. Harry has great success, even riding Buckbeak. Love Bucky. Later, Draco insults Buckbeak, and the Hippogriff slashes open the boy's arm. Hagrid worries that he'll be fired. You know what? Buckby couldn't have slashed Draco's arm if all the Malfoys had been in jail. That's right. That's what I'm saying. This is like, <laughs> why do we put up with this? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Chapter seven, the boggard in the wardrobe. Madame Pomfrey, she fixed up Draco's arm like it was nothing right. because it was really nothing. Well, I mean, there was, it was, there was considerable in the book anyway. Lots it's just, of blood. It's very bloody. But for Madame Pomfrey? Yeah, that's the thing. You it's know, Draco's out here acting like, oh, you know, when it rains, the ache is un- unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> but he is, of course, milking the injury for his own benefit. One of those benefits is taunting 
Harry, both about Hagrid's potential unemployment and about Harry and Ron having to do Draco's bidding in potions, where Seamus has mentioned... Blocks with sizes. Seamus. Blocks. Oh, my God. <laughs> Malfoy is taunting Harry about this, saying that if things were reversed, he would be out there looking for Black. What does that mean? It's clear that it means something. It's clear that Draco knows something that Harry does not. In the first Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson, Professor Lupin takes the class to the staff room where a boggart, which assumes the form of the thing that scares a person the most, has taken up residence in a wardrobe. Under Lupin's supervision, the students learn how to tackle the creature. Lupin, pointedly, does not let Harry have a go. I love Lupin. He's a great guy. Chapter 8, Flight of the Fat Lady. Classes are uh, a mixed bag right now. Defense Against the Dark Arts is pretty great, but Snape is being a dick, divination sucks, and Hagrid has lost all of his confidence due to the Buckbeak incident. On the Quidditch front, Wood, in his final year, is desperate. <laughs> he's got to calm down. It's, he's <laughs> holding on too tightly. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> Desperate it's, to bring the Quidditch Cup to It's Gryffindor. too much. Wood, listen, you're going to burn these kids out if you it's keep a lot. pushing this way. It's really a lot. One day in the common room, everyone except Harry is buzzing about the upcoming trip to Hogsmeade. While everyone's buzzing, amid all the excitement, Crookshanks chasing after scabbers. Crookshanks always knows. Cats always know. The rift between Hermione and Ron simmers. Harry, still focused on trying to get to Hogsmeade, even though he doesn't have his permission slip. He asks McGonagall if she'll let him go. She flat out refuses, telling him once again to focus on winning her her bet (laughs) or to get the fuck out of her face. It's too much sugar over there. I need you eating lean protein. Anyway, the student body traipses off to Hogsmeade, but Harry must stay behind. Goes to see Lupin. He asks the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher why it was that he was not allowed to face the boggart. Snake comes in just then with a mysterious potion, which Lupin gulps down. Ron and Hermione return from Hogsmeade, laden with candy, tales of their adventure. Harry hears about butterbeer. Yes. And the three broomsticks and honeydukes and all of these delightful things. And later... Our friends are returning from the Halloween feast when they encounter a crowd at the entrance to Gryffindor Tower. The fat lady's painting has been slashed. Password keeper is gone. Dun, 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 dun. Who did it? Peeves is all too happy to share. (laughs) What a jerk. Serious Black. Peeves loves to scream and shout various things whenever anyone else does anything. But Serious Black gets into the castle, slashes the fat lady's thing, and Peeves just... Shh. I'll wait till yeah, they come I'll wait ask. till a crowd shows up. <laughs> Chapter 9, Grim Defeat. Dumbledore puts the school on lockdown, but there's no sign of Black anywhere. Snape thinks Black must have someone in the school helping him. Dumbledore will not hear of this. And we see more signs that he distrusts the Dementors. With Black able to access the school, Megalian tries to pull Harry off the Quidditch pitch. Of course, of course, Harry refuses. She's got to protect her investments. That's right. Snape subs for Defense Against the Dark Arts. Lupin's feeling under the weather. And Snape throws all sorts of shade at Lupin's teaching style and then proceeds to spend the entire lesson. (laughs) This is wild. On werewolves, which every student says that's like. Yeah, we don't need that now. We're not there yet. You're skipping ahead. It's like doing algebra in fourth grade. (laughs) You know, 
while we're on the subject of werewolves, here's how you identify them and, in case this comes in handy, yeah. how to kill them. You know, should that happen? <laughs> should you encounter one? You never know. <laughs> Gryffindor takes the pitch against Hufflepuff and their hunky seeker, Cedric Diggory, tall and silent type. Gryffindor rolls out <laughs> to a 50-point lead, but it's tiki-tack. Then, through the rain, Harry sees a shadow in the stands. The Grim! What could it mean? <laughs> Suddenly, everything goes cold. Dementors swarm onto the field. Harry hears screaming. His mother's screaming. He wakes up at Madame Pomfrey's, and his friends tell him that Cedric caught the snitch Dick. in everyone's heart, and Hufflepuff <laughs> has won. That Dumbledore dispersed the Dementors and saved Harry's life, and is also very, very angry about what the Dementors have done. Also, P.S. Your Nimbus 2000 has been reduced to fucking matchsticks. It's splinters right now. Don't ask about it. Oh, you asked about it? Sorry. It's all fucked up. We kept the shards here. No, no safer place than Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map, a classic. <laughs> Professor Lupin is back in class, but his recent illness, it's showing. He keeps Harry after to talk about what happened at the Quidditch match, to talk about the Dementors. He promises to show Harry how to defend himself against them. But it'll have to wait until after the holiday because we have a book to properly pace. That's right. On the day of the next Hogsmeade visit, Fred and George pull Harry aside. They have something for him. It's the Marauder's Map, which they previously nicked from Filch's office. It's a complete map of Hogwarts, including secret passages and real-time, crucial, crucial, real-time locations of everyone on the grounds. It was apparently the creation of someone's... <laughs> Named Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prox, whoever they were. My heroes. Well, three out of four. 75% of them. Harry uses the map naturally to sneak into Hogsmeade. And at the three broomsticks with Ron and Hermione, he overhears Cornelius Cornyfudge talking to Professor Minerva McGallion McGonagall, Flitwick, Hagrid, and Rose Murda, proprietor of the pub. How you doing? Ample bosom. Love her. <laughs> so does Ron. Big fan. <laughs> And they're talking about Sirius Black. Harry learns why everyone has been so worried about him going after Black. This is shocking. This is a quite a twist. Sirius was James Potter's best friend. And when James and Lily went into hiding, Sirius was, so everyone thinks now, their secret keeper. It was Black, Fudge says, who betrayed James and Lily to Voldemort. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Jason. Yes. It has nothing to do with weakness. The studio Dementors affect you worse than the others because there are horrors true. in your past podcast sessions that the others don't have. It's true. It's so true. <laughs> that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapter six through ten of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is humiliation. Chapter six, Talons and Tea Leaves. Harry is new to the Wizarding World. He's only been in it now in his third year. Since then, he's had to adjust to various things. One, that magic exists. Two, the fact that he is a celebrity and a figure of fascination and reverence. He's had to get used to being looked up to and occasionally being loathed. But throughout all that, he's rarely been mocked and certainly not in a way in which the mocking actually strikes a nerve. Draco's famous Harry Potter 
taunts never really had that shiv in the ribs feel, you know, the way those darts about the Weasleys being poor do. Mm. Both are statements of fact, but being famous is something that many people aspire to, right? Right. Bullies seek out weakness, and that's something that Harry hasn't really displayed up to now. Draco's been hunting for Potter's soft spot, some emotionally bare points, some vulnerability, and now, after the Dementor incident, he has it. From the book, when Harry and Ron and Hermione entered the Great Hall for breakfast the next day, the first thing they saw was Draco Malfoy. And what does Draco do? As they passed, Malfoy did a ridiculous impression of a swooning fit, and there was a roar of laughter. What a jerk. What a jerk. Harry has never felt this kind of feeling before. Scared in the face of threats, yes. Hurt and angry about the things that have happened to him in his life, yes. But never powerless. Never completely out of a fight before the fight even starts. It's in a way an emotional return to his days in the cupboard under the stairs. And to make matters worse, Harry doesn't at all understand why this is happening. And thus, there's actually no way to fix it. There's no remedy for this. Everything about what's happened bothers him. And the embarrassment and the humiliation show on his face. What's up with you, Harry? George asks. Malfoy, Ron says. Harry's friends attempt to make him feel better, which in a weird kind of way maybe even makes Harry feel worse. It's a role reversal. Fred and George mention you know, trying to lift him up, mention how scared Malfoy was, right? (laughs) Nearly wet himself, Fred says, and they, along with Ron, talk about Arthur's experience visiting Azkaban and how terrible he says it was. Consider the walk to North Tower and the interaction with Sir Cadogan. He's not just comic relief. He's supposed to be, in theory, a figure of knightly renown who should be the symbol of trust and excellence, safety. But in reality, he can't help but humiliate (laughs) himself at every turn. And that's the backdrop. That's the sequence that precedes Harry's first divination lesson. It is a very effective tone setter because that lesson is an unmitigated assault on Harry's sense of self-worth and safety. Usually, it's Harry who comes to the defense of his friends and his classmates. Now, though, his distress over the Dementor incident has awakened his friend's protective instincts toward him. When Professor Trelawney, in what we cannot... Say this strongly enough. Her absolutely iconic it's debut. Iconic. It's some of my favorite writing of Rolling oh in God. this. It's so every, funny, too. Every line yeah, is perfect. Truly perfect. And in this introduction, she quickly singles out Harry, saying after grabbing his cup from Ron's hand and reading his tea leaves, among other things, the Falcon, my dear, you have a deadly enemy. Hermione... Yes. Rises to Harry's defense. But everyone knows that. Hermione being insolent toward a teacher? Wow, this is shocking. Harry and Ron stare at her with, quote, amazement and admiration. When gazing further into the misty future, Trelawney tells Harry that she sees, quote, the club in attack. Dear, dear, this is not a happy cup. (laughs) (laughs) Wild. And, quote, the skull, danger in your path, my dear. And then, after a very effective (laughs) dramatic scream, the grim, quote, a giant spectral dog that haunts churchyards, a death omen. Harry, already rattled by recent events and not understanding the significance of the dog that he saw actually being his godfather, Sirius, who was coming to check on him, feels fear, foreboding, wash over him. He was already unsettled by seeing that dog and then by seeing the image of the dog on the cover of the book in Flourish and Blots. And now he's hearing again that this is a death omen. He's sick of feeling this way. He's sick of feeling 
on stage like he's a creature at the zoo. And Harry loses control. He shouts, when you've all finished deciding whether I'm going to die or not. And the description in the book reads, said Harry, taking even himself by surprise. Now nobody seemed to want to look at him. He's just tired of it. He's tired of people thinking that he's weak, thinking that he's in peril, doubting his ability to take care of himself and to survive. That kind of commentary doesn't make him feel loved. His takeaway there isn't, oh, these people want to make me feel safe. It makes him feel shame. And Hermione, who is still dismissive and now absolutely scornful, slaps Trelawney's reading right into the front row. She says, I don't think it looks like a grim. (laughs) (laughs) Surely Hermione's reaction is in part because she is studious and analytical and values clarity and precision, none of which apply to divination. Certainly not as Trelawney teaches it. But she also wants Harry to feel better. She doesn't want him to be suffering this ongoing display of humiliation. She pays for that with some humiliation of her own. Trelawney says, you'll forgive me for saying so, my dear, but I perceive very little aura around you. Unbelievable line from Trelawney. (laughs) Very little receptivity to the resonances of the future. Tough stuff. You and Umbridge, both. (laughs) You know who else isn't fond of Trelawney? Professor Minerva McGallion McGonagall. Just an incredible stretch of chapters this for McGallion. This is so juicy. When transforming <laughs> into her animagus cat form, fails to arouse the excitement. Again, amazing animagi seed planting in this book by Rowling. Truly special. She asks her class, what's wrong? Everybody always loves when I turn into a cat. And you guys are just like... You're not even clapping. You're not even clapping. There's nothing happening. <laughs> Hermione tells her that, well, we've just come from divination and McGee immediately understands what's going on. Which of you will be dying this year? She asks. And Harry raises his hand. Me. McGallion tells her students that, listen, guys, this is Trey Lonnie's bit. She does it every year. <laughs> Seeing death omens, that's just what she does. And by the way, none of the other kids died. Every one of them live it a happy, happy life. Yeah, nothing bad has ever happened to anyone at Hogwarts. Right, but I'm just saying the kids that she predicted to die have not died. That's all. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> McGallion, as she tells the class, is not one to speak ill of her colleagues. No, and never. Then, so then she just proceeds to speak ill of her colleagues. <laughs> she can't help it when it comes to Trelawney. Divination is one of the most imprecise branches of magic. I shall not conceal from you that I have very little patience with it. Trucias are very rare. And Professor Trelawney, and then she kind of trails off. But perhaps she's thinking, lost me thousands of galleons <laughs> with her can't miss prediction. <laughs> All those years, that's what I think happened. Love this idea. Love that we've spent a lot of time in our prep window for this pod discussing the possibility that the animosity between Trelawney and McGonagall actually stems from faulty prognosticating. That's right. A false bit of advice that led McGonagall maybe to go all in. That's what I'm saying. All in. Chudley Cannons to win the league. (laughs) It's a sure thing. I've seen it in the tea leaves. Ooh, my vault is empty. The inner eye does not see a punk command. <laughs> right. I sense a uh, very little aura around you, Professor <laughs> McGonagall. <laughs> yes, because I'm broke. <laughs> the aura is of debt yeah. and shame. Also, on a more serious note, an incredible bit of prophecy foreshadowing there when Spritz. McGonagall is saying true seers are very rare. Yes. Hagrid's first lesson, meanwhile, begins with a fresh dose of humiliation for him. None of his students know how to open the monster book of monsters. Think about this. Hagrid is so excited for his first lesson. He can't wait. His first day as a teacher. His dream finally being realized. And nobody in his class knows how to open their 
book. That well, is devastating. Can I just say, you as a rookie teacher, you learn as you go. I think in this case, I hate to critique Hagrid. I think you should have just had a note of instruction with yes. those books. Like, just, yes. you know, pet the book and then it opens. You can't just be like, here's a vicious book it. and not <laughs> got to stroke it, guys. It's not <laughs> obvious to everyone the way it is to Hagrid. Hagrid may not always know how to keep a secret, obviously. And he may have a warped sense of what is dangerous. He does. But his heart, we can agree, is always in the right place. He's loyal. He's true. His heart is as big as his moleskin overcoat. Being a teacher means everything to him. It's confirmation that it's possible to overcome past mistakes or past misunderstandings. It's proof that Dumbledore's unwavering belief in him was not misplaced. Hagrid is so full of passion, and he genuinely cannot wait to share that passion with his students and to help them discover the joy and fulfillment of caring for and better understanding these creatures. Step one going wrong really embarrasses him because it causes him to doubt and to fear further missteps. And sure enough, another misstep awaits. Humiliation, as far as we know, is a human emotion. Anthropomorphizing animals can be tricky. And though my beloved dog, Milton, can seem at times abashed when he is taking a dump, I can't be sure that what he's actually feeling is humiliation in the way that I would feel it if I was also taking a shit in the street in broad daylight. (laughs) That said, Buckbeak is a creature who clearly does not appreciate being shown up, being mocked, being otherwise roasted. Hagrid, again, in his teaching debut, warns his charges about this. Easily offended, hypocrites are. Don't ever insult one because it might be the last thing you do. Quick aside, love my guy Hagrid, but I think we need to work our way up to creatures like hippogriffs. Let's start with the flobberworms, day one, and we get to hippogriffs, maybe the middle part of the term, maybe towards the end of the term. Work your way up to the stuff that can kill the kids. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no safer place than our hearts. <laughs> By the way, this warning is all Malfoy that little fucking shit needs to hear. I bet you're not dangerous at all, are you? Are you? You great, ugly brute. The one rule Man. of being a bully, the only rule that matters, know your mark. There are those you can humiliate, push around, and those you can't. Hippogriffs are, without a doubt, the second one, guys. Buckbeak's talons slice open Malfoy's arm and gouts of blood issue forth from the wound. Do not mess with Buckbeak. Shouts to Bucky. Won my heart that day. Won my heart that day. (laughs) Just aim that talent a little higher. Right in the jugular area. Yeah, I'm just saying. Oh, come on. Can't wait for Cram's fact note here. Is it okay to (laughs) imply we want to murder a child? (laughs) Chapter 7. Yeah. The Boggart in the Wardrobe. Ooh. Give Malfoy this. He is an effective bully. He knows how to be a troll. He knows how to be an asshole. And he knows when to press an advantage. Hagrid's very Hagrid moment of poor decision-making has given Malfoy the opportunity to further humiliate everyone in Hagrid's orbit and everyone in Harry's orbit. In Potions class, under the watchful and supportive eye of Severus Snape. Yeah, can we— Head of Slytherin House. Snape is like, this is great. I love this. (laughs) What's going on today? (laughs) Wonderful. Malfoy milks his not really injured any longer arm injury for some oh poor me laughs. He gets Snape to force Ron and Harry to help him with his potions prep, getting shots in all the while. Senior pal Hagrid lately, he sneers. (sighs) Fucking asshole. Malfoy tells them that his father is quite upset about Buckbeak's attack. 100% provoked. And that Lucius is using his influence as an ex-member of the school's governors to have Hagrid removed. You know, if you've threatened to murder a student in the schools of Hogwarts, (laughs) your your influence is definitely fully intact. 
Draco, just like his father, loves to feel superior to others and delights in making them feel less powerful, less connected, less rich, less full stop. Yes. And in Harry's case, he really delights in making him feel less knowledgeable about the events that shaped Harry's own life. Sirius Black comes up. Same close to school. Am am in a daily profit. Sirius Black. Same close to school. Oh my god. <laughs> Malfoy goads Harry with a subtle jab, thinking of trying to catch Black single-handed Potter. And look, Malfoy's always talking shit, so right. Harry's like. Whatever. Yeah, he's just well, like, yeah, what the fuck are you talking about? But also, like, just leave me alone. I got a shrivel fig to deal with. <laughs> this should register instantly more with Harry than it does because Arthur Weasley recently made Harry promise not to seek out Black, a request that at the time seemed bizarre. Outlandish. Why, Why? Would I chase yes. after a mass murderer? Yes. Malfoy continues, obliquely implying that Harry is a coward, saying, of course, if it was me, I'd have done something before now. I wouldn't be staying in school like a good boy. I'd be out there looking for him. This really gets Harry's attention, to the point where he actually can't stop thinking about yeah. it. What are you talking about, he says angrily. And he's harping on this later, asking Ron what he thinks Malfoy meant. Why does Draco think that Harry should be chasing Black? Yes. Why would Draco be doing that yes. if the roles were reversed? What does Draco know about Harry's life that he doesn't? In the end, Draco holds back this information, the better to draw out the humiliation. In Rowling's world, appearances, more often than not, deceive. They conceal. Think of Platform 9 and 3 quarters, Diagon Alley, the Chamber of Secrets, the Invisibility Cloak, and a Maggie. There are too many examples to list, but let's scribble down Remus Lupin's name on that lengthy sheet of parchment. He's shabbily dressed, wan, ill-seeming, not very much to look at. However, by the end of this book, he will be Clearly, the best defense against the dark arts teacher our heroes will have had the fortune to study under. Now, the competition is weak. Concealed beneath the surface aesthetic of Lupin is the truth of his true nature as a werewolf and how that affects his life, his relationships, and his job prospects. And hidden beneath and behind all of that is Lupin's history as a member of the Marauders and as a close friend of James and Sirius Black, who, as young men, tormented and humiliated Severus Snape. For now, though, the humiliation is just all Harry's. Lupin takes a class to see a boggart, which has taken up residence in a wardrobe. The creature takes on the form of a thing a person is most afraid of, which can make it tricky to deal with. Lupin explains. The charm that repels a boggart is simple, yet it requires force of mind. You see, the thing that really finishes a boggart is laughter. What you need to do is force it to assume a shape that you find amusing. He also says, this means we have a huge advantage over the boggart before we begin. Have you spotted it, Harry? This kind of inclusion and engagement from a teacher, particularly in this subject, has got to feel great to Harry. Better still that Harry actually knows the answer of the question he's being asked, right? Numbers. There's just too many kids for the boggart to focus in on, thus confusing the creature. This, in a nutshell, is why Lupin is the best Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, in the story. Clear, practical training that establishes a way of thinking that the students can then use again and again applied to other challenges. Lupin asks the class to picture what they're most afraid of and to imagine making it look ridiculous. Beating a Bogart boils down to, in essence, humiliating it. Maybe on one of our Ask the Underscore Mailbag episodes, we'll share what our Bogarts would be. Oh, my God. <laughs> Neville goes first because Neville was humiliated, and Lupin wants to encourage him to overcome 
that embarrassment. Earlier in Potions, and this is before Lupin is even aware of anything transpiring, Neville had suffered his latest bullying at Snape's hand. Does anything penetrate that thick skull of yours? Snape is shaming him for not performing well in class. Even Neville's toad, Trevor, was made to suffer in a demonstration. That was too much. Did not like that. Like, we ride really hard for Snape on this I, podcast because he is one of the most compelling figures in all of literature, but that is yeah, that was abusive. Mean. There's no need for that. No. Also, leave Trevor in the common room or whatever. Get him in an aquarium. We don't need to carry Trevor everywhere. Do we? I don't know. I would bring Halo everywhere if I could. Sure, I guess. Love an animal. Does he get dry? Protect Does he dry- Trevor! <laughs> Does Trevor get dried out? That's a good question. I guess not if Snape is constantly pouring potion all over him. <laughs> then when Lupin leads the students into the staff room, Snape is present. And upon exiting, he shames Neville, dunks on him in front of everyone. He says to Lupin, possibly no one's warned you, Lupin, but this class contains Neville Longbottom. I would advise you not to entrust him with anything difficult. And That's Neville, wild. That's just awful. And Neville turns scarlet. Lupin, winning us over, defends Neville just instinctually. He says, I was hoping that Neville would assist me with the first stage of the operation. And then he says, I'm sure he will perform it admirably. The faith that Lupin shows in Neville gives Neville the strength to prevail, successfully putting Boggart Snape in his grandmother's wares. Quite a visual. And then Parvati goes and Seamus and basically every single person in the class except Hermione and Harry, who... While waiting for his turn, that didn't end up coming, first thought of Voldemort naturally, but then remembered the effect that the Dementors on the train had on him. It's fascinating. Why didn't Lupin let Harry try? Does Lupin think that Harry isn't up to it? There's some irony at play here. The idea that Lupin may be trying to spare Harry from some sort of public humiliation actually adds to Harry's existing embarrassment. And Harry will get clarity in time in the coming chapters over what was actually going through Lupin's mind in this moment. But all he has right now are his own suspicions, his own doubts. And those doubts fester and they turn into and exacerbate his humiliation. When Lupin awards points to everyone in the lesson, including Harry, Harry can't help himself. He says, but I didn't do anything. Lupin says he answered his question correctly at the beginning of class. Pretty much everyone Even Hermione, who's like, I really wish I had gotten a crack at the Boggart. Everyone is thrilled about this lesson. Best they've ever had. But, quote, Harry, however, wasn't feeling cheerful. Professor Lupin had deliberately stopped him from tackling the Boggart. Why? Was it because he'd seen Harry collapse on the train and thought he wasn't up to much? Had he thought Harry would pass out again? Harry is humiliated. He didn't get to participate. And worse, he worries that what Lupin has already seen from Harry has made him think that Harry is weak. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the yes. original Casper, Ooh. the Wave, wow. and the Essential, Gotta have it. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed mm. to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention... The breathable design helps you sleep cool, regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Get $50 toward... 
select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash binge mode and using binge mode at checkout. That's casper.com slash binge mode. Offer code binge mode for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 8, Flight of the Fat Lady. Defense Against the Dark Arts has quickly shot up to the top of the class power rankings, but other classes aren't doing so well, namely potions, where Snape is, quote, in a particularly vindictive mood because the story of Neville's (laughs) Snape-centric Boggart has traveled like a wildfire throughout the school. Cersei-esque. It's amazing. No one could ever accuse Snape of caring what people think, and he certainly dishes out too much humiliation onto other people to ever take the moral high ground. But even so, this has got to be embarrassing to him. And while at this point in the story, we don't have full clarity on Snape's history with Lupin and company, in hindsight, certainly on reread, that full clarity allows us to understand that this is a great indignity for Snape because it happened under the watch of Lupin, a man Snape loathes and holds certainly accountable as one of the gang who bullied him throughout his school years. Now, Sirius and James were the ringleaders. Yes. But Lupin was there and he never... He didn't stop it. He didn't stop it. And certainly he didn't stop being their friends. Right. That means something. The bogger didn't occur in a vacuum. It washed up all of Snape's childhood shame and anxieties. At least Boggart Snape didn't turn into someone who mocks an animal lover. Oh, man. <sighs> Boy, tough look for Hermione in this chapter. Hermione! Hermione. <laughs> ruthless here. Savage stuff. Hermione may not have felt humiliation when she just hand waves Lavender's <laughs> grief. I know. In the wake of Binky's death. Well, isn't it really when you heard about when Binky died? Not when it... Because like, she actually was torn apart <laughs> days earlier. You see what I'm saying, Lavender? Extremely <laughs> tough. We, as animal lovers, were humiliated on Hermione's behalf. That's right. Lavender is distraught obviously, over her baby rabbit's death, and particularly so because she thinks that she should have seen it coming. It's October 16th, the day that Trelawney told her the things she was dreading would come to pass. Hermione's not here she for it. She does not want to hear this shit. Well, look at it logically. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the kind of thing that people are logical about. What are you doing? This is actually a great moment for Ron because he calls her out. It's fucking great. And it's a great moment, obviously, for starting to set up this future love triangle when he says, don't mind Hermione Lavender. She doesn't think other people's pets matter very much. Harry is still shirking off Trelawney's prognostications in part because he has other things to focus on. Namely, man, I got to get to Hogsmeade. I got to get that candy. It must absolutely gall him to not be able to go when everyone else gets to. The prospect of missing out exacerbates that sense of otherness that Harry so often feels, and particularly now since the Dementors. His last hope, he thinks, is to ask Professor McGonagall. After all, she is head of house. She is, or has been, shamelessly and flagrantly bending the rules and regulations for him (laughs) over the course of his Hogwarts career. Yes. So why stop now? Why stop now? Surely (laughs) she'll do anything she can to make her star seeker Happy. Drop the bag one more time, Megalia. Relaxed <laughs> and ready to catch that snitch. <laughs> sorry, guy, no dice. The form clearly states that the parent or guardian must give permission. I'm sorry, Potter, but that's my final word. You'd better hurry. You'll be late for your next lesson. Harry isn't just disappointed by her answer. He's ashamed from the book. She turned to look at him with an odd expression on her face. Was it pity? Ugh. He's reading into the looks that she's 
giving him now. And it's really making him feel humiliated, really making him feel inadequate. Perhaps, by the way, he should have said, well, who knows if I'll catch the snitch next game unless I get to Hogsmeade. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm tense. I'm t- yeah, I just I need, really, I need to just, like, I could use a butter beer, up. a house in Hogsmeade for my folks <laughs> who are dead. <laughs> Put it in their name, though, you know? So it's, <laughs> oh, yeah. Always. <laughs> that feeling of inadequacy follows Harry into the day of the Hogsmeade visit when he wakes feeling, quote, thoroughly depressed. This is really sad. Hermione and Ron... At this point, they've put their bickering on hold because they feel so bad for Harry. They are, quote, looking desperately sorry for him. Malfoy, of course, finds a way to get in another jab. Staying here, Potter? Scared of passing the Dementors? Just layer, layer, a layer of shame here. Harry is the only third year who isn't going to be going. That's tough. That's crazy. Awful. It's not the kind of thing he can expect others to miss. Everyone's going to notice that he's not there. It's not the kind of thing that he himself can shrug off. He is missing out. Real FOMO kicking in here, and everyone knows it. He's wandering around in his despair, thinking maybe he'll go visit Hedwig at the Owlery to pass the time. Harry, do it. You never visit Hedwig. Go see her. Animals need love. I know. It's wild that he doesn't go see her more. That is truly shocking to me. Terrible. On his way, he hears someone call his name. It's Lupin, who invites him in for some tea. And Lupin says that he only has tea bags, but that Harry's probably had enough of the loose leaf variety anyway. Right. And this is a delicate dance from Lupin here because yeah. on the one hand, it's confirmation that Trelawney's death omens have gotten around. They've made their way around the staff, which has to make Harry feel worse. <laughs> on the other hand, Lupin is so expert at instantly positioning himself as an ally rather than a judger. Yes. And this wins Harry over. His awareness makes Harry feel better, safer. Because it makes him feel like he can, at least to the extent that he's currently comfortable with, start to open up. Not all the way, though. Harry considers telling Lupin about the dog he saw in Magnolia Crescent, but doesn't. In part because, quote, he didn't want Lupin to think he was a coward. Especially since Lupin already seemed to think he couldn't cope with a boggart. And in part, of course, because it's too early in the story for Animagus confirmation. (laughs) Harry is saying aloud that he's not worried. But he's so filled with shame that he won't allow himself to fully speak freely. Harry asks Lupin why he didn't let him fight the Boggart. This is one of the early moments that really makes Lupin such a beloved character. Beloved to Harry, beloved to us. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deflect. He admits that he stopped Harry. And what's more, he says he thought the reason why would be obvious. He believed Harry's Boggart would be (laughs) Lord Voldemort, (laughs) which it's fair to assume would cause a immense panic in the class. Harry notes... Not only Lupin's candor, but that Lupin says Voldemort's name. Harry chooses to be open as well, to be vulnerable. He admits that he thought of Voldy first, but then, and this is still fascinating, because to be fair, he beat Voldemort twice already. Yeah. He's up 2-0 in the series. <laughs> 3-0, really? Yeah, baby. <laughs> Vapormort and Riddle. It's a 3-0 lead. <laughs> From Harry Potter. The Dementors came in and really waylaid him before he could even get on the field. So, of course, the Dementors are the thing he's most scared of. I see, says Lupin. Well, well, I'm impressed. That suggests what you fear most of all is fear. Very wise, Harry. Lupin deduces that Harry thought Lupin believed him incapable. Just as Harry's about to push through more of his shame and ask about the Dementors, though, Snape enters with a smoking goblet and instructions for Lupin to drink it right away. You got to drink it while it's hot. You got to drink it right now. No, no, no. Don't let it cool. I don't want to see that. No blowing on it. You got to drink it right now. (laughs) Harry's tempted to knock the goblet out of Lupin's (laughs) hand. He shouts about how some think Snape would do anything 
to get the defense job. We're getting more and more clues here about Lupin's condition, but also yes. continued reinforcement about the prejudices people carry toward each other. The descriptions that we get in these pages of foaming mugs of hot butter beer and the Halloween feast decorations are among the most captivating, among the lines that most make us want to live in this world. They are gorgeous. They are immersive. And it must be said, very well replicated at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. It's a wonderful feast. But not everything is holiday cheer, because on their way back to the common room, there's a holdup at the fat lady's portrait. Percy calls for Dumbledore. Percy, like, all you do is boast (laughs) about what a big shot you are, and then one thing happens, you finally have something to do, and you're like, where's dad? Yeah, it's very tough. (laughs) The canvas has been slashed so viciously that strips of it litter the floor. The other teachers arrive, and Dumbledore wants Filch to search for the fat lady, but Peeves says they'll be lucky to find her. This fucking guy. Ashamed, your headship, sir. Doesn't want to be seen. She's a horrible mess. The fat lady actually stood her ground yes. and performed her sacred duty admirably, yet she is still humiliated by what that action cost her. And who did this to her? Who humiliated her in this fashion? Dear sweet Peeves, he got very angry when she wouldn't let him in. You see, Peeves flipped over and grinned at Dumbledore from between his own legs. Nasty temper he's got. That serious black. Bomb, bomb, bomb. It's really it's inc- so incredible. Good. That's the banger at the end yeah. of the chapter. Fabulous. Chapter nine, Grim Defeat. Mm. Dumbledore sends all the students to the Great Hall so the teachers can search the castle. And Sleepover. Everyone, so everyone is like, how did he get in? Did he apparate? Did he use a disguise? Did he use flight? Hermione pipes up. Honestly, am I the only person who's ever bothered to read Hogwarts a history? Ron is like, probably. <laughs> Love that. And she explains <laughs> that the castle's robust protective enchantments prevent apparating on school grounds. She continues, and I'd like to see the disguise that could fool those dementors. They're guarding every single entrance to the grounds. They'd have seen them fly in too, and Filch knows all the secret passages. They'll have them covered. Hermione makes some good points. Mm -hmm. Once again, proving her worth as a scholar, but as we'll come to see in time, Sirius is humiliating the castle itself and its defenses by using secret passageways and his secret standing as an animagus to infiltrate the grounds in the building itself. The conversation between Snape and Dumbledore and the lurker Percy. Really weird. Weird (laughs) choice. That Harry and co over here is rife with subtext and meaning that's hiding just out of view. We'll come to understand in time that the same childhood insecurities and humiliation between Snape and the Marauders that we mentioned a little earlier are fueling Snape's suspicion in this very moment. He believes that Lupin is helping his old bestie, Sirius Black, get into the castle. What's more... He's not afraid to imply as such to yeah. Dumbledore. He even, we glean, tried to stop Lupin from being appointed in the first place. Snape says to Dumbledore, it seems almost impossible <laughs> that Black could have entered the school without inside help. I did express my concern when you appointed. And Dumbledore cuts him off. He says that he doesn't believe anyone in the castle would help Black to enter it. And, quote, his tone made it so clear that the subject was closed that Snape didn't reply. Think of the humiliation that Lupin would feel in this moment if he knew that his loyalties were being questioned in this fashion. Humiliation that would be exacerbated, surely, as we come to see at the end of the story by the guilt that he's already feeling over not sharing with Dumbledore what he knows about Sirius being an animagus and Sirius's knowledge of the secret passageways into the school. Snape is not right about Lupin actively helping Sirius, but he's right in a way because Lupin's decision to sit on the information that he possesses is a passive form of assistance and one that will ultimately 
will learn, bring him shame. McGonagall is looking to assist also. She's looking to assist her purse. But in a truly (laughs) iconic medallion moment. Unreal. She absolutely goes through the motions of telling Harry that it isn't safe for him to practice Quidditch on the grounds in such an open, unprotected space. Very exposed. (laughs) Oh, my God. Quite exposed, Mr. Parker. Now, you could read this as the long con by McGallion, protecting her asset, who, after all, she's expecting great things from the next four school years. Listen, the first two seasons, kind of a wash, extenuating circumstances. Yes. But still, you can see the potential there. Oh, yeah. What good's another victory or two in the short term if she loses her cash cow forever? Guys, there's five more years of this. You know what I'm saying? But that's not how the addiction works, is it, friends? No, you no, no. can't ignore the shakes in the moment. No. Emmy Galleon needs her fix. Needs a bad. When Harry pushes back by noting that first match is on Saturday and he has to practice, it's all too easy to break through. Professor McGonagall considered him intently. <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> Harry knew she was deeply interested in the Gryffindor's oh team's God. prospects. <laughs> It had been she, after all, oh my God. who'd suggested him as seeker in the first place. He waited, holding his breath. Hmm. Professor McGonagall stood up and stared <laughs> out the window at the Quidditch field, just visible through the rain. Of course, she's milking it now. Oh, yeah. Well, goodness knows I'd like to see us win the cup at last. <laughs> but all the same, Potter, I'd be happier if a teacher were present. I'll ask Madame Hooch to oversee a training session. This is next level medallion. Incredible. She's basically admitting <laughs> that... Adhering to sense and reason is not as important as making sure her star player is out there on the field so she can get that coin going to pay off her bookie. She can't risk the humiliation of the goblins coming after her to clear her debt. And, you know, everyone knows the goblins will never let this shit go. She is never just an unrivaled legend. This is only like a degree removed from John Boyd so forcing his players to take injections <laughs> into their uh, injured joints. It's so much better because varsity blues. Megalian, how she's brilliant is she makes Harry believe that it's his idea. Oh, sure. Inception. Yeah. She doesn't want to be like, oh, well, Harry, you must play. <laughs> she understands that. Right. Go through the motions of pretending Make it like seem you're like, the caring teacher. That's right. And now wise. all of a sudden he's got, I, listen, I got to be out there. Dementors, no dementors, mass murderer on the loose. Also, real talk? <laughs> Spotted Madam close here. Hooch? That's what you're going with? Wait, Madam Hooch. Yeah, First it's like, flying lesson, Neville almost dies. Yes, come on. Across the series, Madam Hooch will regularly fall asleep while Madam she's Hooch, supposed to be watching them. An unbelievable incompetent. Another of Dumbledore's failures as a manager, <laughs> Madam Hooch, who has done nothing thus far except nearly kill Neville and can you identify soon to fall a asleep? Jinxed broom or a rogue bludger no. during a match? No. Okay, you're hired, Madam Hooch. Just fucking cashing checks herself. <laughs> Megalian isn't the only professor Harry has to contend with. Snape is subbing in Defense Against the Dark Arts, and the entire lecture is a concerted effort on Snape's part to. Totally humiliate Lupin yes. in front of his students. He comments on Lupin. This is mean. Oh, it's awful. At the same time, <laughs> as an aside, yeah, you can understand where you're bullied for your entire school life by these kids. Mm-hmm. Now you're being asked to be a colleague with one of these kids who's in the essentially job you want. in the job you want, and he's essentially unrepentant for the stuff that happened. Passes the well. It was mostly serious in James, and and you're now responsible for his fucking medical care. <laughs> mean i mean listen snape's a dick but i get it i get it yeah having to make the potion is really tough i gotta make the potion now 
Maybe that's why he made Ron <laughs> scrub the bedpans without magic. Really thinking about how right. the wizarding world needs better medical coverage. <laughs> Maybe that's why he makes Lupin drink the potion while it's boiling, because that's the only like get back he can get. Yeah, drink it right now. Burn your mouth. Oh my god. <laughs> Snape in front of Lupin students comments on Lupin's poor organization. How very far behind the class is. When Dean defends Lupin by saying, he's the best defense against dark arts teacher we've ever had. Snape fires back with, yes, you are easily satisfied. Which, again, <laughs> the benchmark was Voldemort and Lockhart. It's extremely so, low. Yeah, extremely low, easily guys. satisfied. Snape wants this job. He would measure anyone who's in it against the success that he believes he would have in the role. But the idea that Lupin, part of this gang that tormented Snape in his youth, who's now in Snape's mind, again getting away with whatever he wants, taking it away from him, it's too much to bear. And so Snape begins discussing werewolves. And again, with the benefit of what we will come to learn over the course of the entire story, yes. it is very clear what he's doing here. Yeah. He's hoping to out Lupin. He's hoping that someone in the class will piece this together, yeah. which Hermione, of course, is smart enough right. to actually do. Maybe even harm him. He sets an essay on how to identify and kill. <laughs> that is wild, though. <laughs> a bit much. Here's how you kill him, guys. <laughs> bit much. But it's not enough to shame Lupin. Snape has to shame the students, too, for they are Lupin's defenders and thus Snape's enemies. When Hermione tries to answer Snape's questions about how to distinguish between the werewolf and the true wolf, Snape snaps. That is the second time you've spoken out of turn, Miss Granger. Five more points from Gryffindor for being an insufferable know-it-all. Hermione's face goes red. Her eyes fill with tears. And even Ron, who, as the book notes, regularly calls her a know-it-all, defends her. Snape's humiliation of Hermione backfired because it makes him look really small, really petty, and it unites the class even further against him. We love Snape because of the complexity of his character. But this scene here is an important reminder that your own pain is not an excuse to belittle other people. Bullying is not okay. Break the cycle. That's what I'm saying. It's Quidditch time. Isn't it always? It's Quidditch time, guys. Here's a debate that's been raging on the internet of late. Is Harry a jock or a nerd? I reject the binary definitions here. Of course. But let's engage. I think the answer, using this frame, is clear. Over the course of our story, we will see many instances of Harry choosing Quidditch and girls over fighting the forces of evil. (laughs) Quidditch is something that Harry has a natural affinity for. He was good at it before he even knew about it. The Quidditch ground is a refuge from him, and his talent, a stride of broom, is undeniable to all who see it. All of that gets called into question when Gryffindor goes up against Hufflepuff and, as we said, their hunky seeker, Cedric Diggory. It's storming out, and the snitch is absolutely impossible to find in the pouring rain. Suddenly, Harry does see something. He sees the dog. In his mind, the Grim, the Death Omen. Now, as we've noted, Dad! and as you know, that's his godfather, Sirius, <laughs> who's just checking up on him. It's very sweet. Doesn't know it, though. Then, rattled by that, as he's dueling with Cedric for the snitch, disaster. The Dementors, searching for Black in the stadium, have invaded the pitch. It's described as a hundred Dementors. Harry feels the cold in his chest and hears the horrible screams. Someone was screaming, screaming inside of his head. A woman. Not Harry, not Harry, please not Harry. Stand aside, you silly girl, stand aside now. And he passes out, falling off of his broom. Terrible. Harry wakes to other voices. He's in the hospital wing, naturally. He learns that he fell 50 
feet and is only alive because Dumbledore slowed his momentum at the end. The severity of what occurred is clear. Everyone around him looks terrified. Harry has a more immediate concern. The match. Yeah. Did we win? We didn't lose. They tell him Cedric got the snitch just after Harry fell. Cedric didn't realize that Harry had fallen and asked for a rematch, but everyone agrees they won fair and square. Everyone except Wood, who is not there because he is trying to drown himself in the showers. Wood. Good Wood. Wood, my good man, relax. You gotta let go. Enabled by Megalion this whole time. Right. What would we expect? <laughs> one goal, one focus. It's unbelievable. Quote, Harry lay there not saying a word. They had lost. For the first time ever, he had lost a Quidditch match. Quidditch is the one thing that Harry never doubted. It's the one thing that has always come as naturally to him as breathing. But now he has failed. And that knowledge fills him with dread and self-loathing. He's worried that he let people down. And worse, he's worried about why. He's worried about what caused him to let people down. They tell him about Dumbledore's wrath over the Dementors' appearance and how he redirected the Dementors with, quote, silver stuff. Harry's thoughts are beginning to shift from the humiliation of losing the match to the much bigger dread that's starting to consume everything in his life right now. Quote, he was thinking about what the Dementors had done to him, about the screaming voice. He looked up and saw Ron and Hermione looking at him so anxiously that he quickly cast around for something matter-of-fact to say. Why are these creatures affecting Harry so severely? Chapter 10. The Marauder's Map. The early pages of this chapter are consumed by the shame that Harry feels because of his Quidditch fall and failure to win the match. He can't throw away his broom fragments. This is devastating. This is sad. Quote, he felt as though he'd lost one of his best friends. (laughs) Oh, man. He He felt as though he'd lost the earliest proof of McGonagall's corruption. (laughs) I know. He also can't shake the mortification and fear. From the book again, nothing anyone said or did could make Harry feel any better because they knew only half of what was troubling him. He hasn't told anyone about the Grimm, whose appearances he realized are now followed by two near-fatal accidents. Then, of course, there are the mentors and their effect on him. Quote, Harry felt sick and humiliated every time he thought of them. Everyone said the Dementors were horrible, but no one else collapsed every time they went near one. No one else heard echoes in their head of dying parents. He's realized that the screaming he's hearing is that of his mother. The book continues, when the Dementors approached him, he heard the last moments of his mother's life, her attempts to protect him, Harry, from Lord Voldemort, and Voldemort's laughter before he murdered her. He's dreaming of the Dementors and waking to think about his mother's dying words. How awful. Thankfully, Lupin has returned, and he keeps Harry after class to ask about what happened at the match. Harry asks if he heard about the Dementors, too. Quote, with difficulty. With difficulty, he poses that question because he's ashamed. And... Finally, he finds the courage and the strength to voice his concern aloud. Why? Why do they affect me like that? Am I just... And Lupin cuts him off. He can sense the doubt that's plaguing Harry before Harry even puts voice to it. It has nothing to do with weakness, said Professor Lupin sharply, as though he had read Harry's mind. The Dementors affect you worse than the others because there are horrors in your past that the others don't have. Lupin assures Harry that the Dementors are unholy, foul things. Even muggles can feel them, he says, though they don't understand what they're encountering. Some good Dudley Order of the Phoenix foreshadowing there. Lupin tells Harry that Dementors suck out every good feeling, every happy memory. They reduce their victims just to their misery, to something, quote, like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life, and the worst that happened to you, Harry, is enough to make anyone fall off their broom. You have nothing to feel ashamed of. Harry fights through 
a lump in his throat to tell Lupin what he hears when they get near him. And something about Lupin allows Harry to open up, to push through the feelings of disgrace and seek comfort and clarity. He doesn't yet know that Lupin knew his parents, that he was so close to James, though there are signs. Quote, after Harry mentions his parents, Lupin made a sudden motion with his arm as though to grip Harry's shoulder, but thought better of it. Is he considering in that moment telling Harry that he was friends with his parents? There are also more signs about Lupin's connection to Sirius. When Harry notes that Sirius escaped the dreaded fortress of Azkaban that Lupin is describing, quote, Lupin's briefcase slipped from the desk. Signs upon signs upon signs. Then Harry does one of the hardest things that any of us ever has to do, especially when we feel the burden of expectation, when we face doubt, when we want or need to prove ourselves. He asks for help. Lupin, he notes, was able to fend off the Dementor on the train. Lupin agrees to teach Harry, but not until after the holiday. Before the holiday, time to visit Hogsmeade again, guys. Uh Harry is resigned to, once again, bearing the shame of not being able to visit, be the only one in the third year left out. But the Weasley twins have something else for him. One of the best remedies for humiliation is someone else acting selflessly in a way that makes you feel worthy. Fred and George do this for Harry by giving him the Marauder's Map One of the signature magical inventions of the series. More on the map in today's restricted section. When the twins say, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good and mischief managed, they're not just teaching Harry how to activate and wipe the map. They're doing good. They're telling him that they don't think he deserves to feel the way he's been feeling. They're telling him that he gets to belong, and they're telling their brother, Ron, that he is not worthy (laughs) of their attentions. Harry does have a... Brief moment here of contemplation when Mr. Weasley's words about not trusting anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain come back to him. But ultimately, his desire to feel included trumps everything else. And Hermione, when Harry meets up with her and Ron and Honeydukes, raises a more practical concern. What if Sirius Black is using one of the secret passageways on the map to get in? Harry wrongly says, quote, one of them's got the Whomping Willow planted over the entrance, so you can't get out of it. Of course, we will learn in time that that is exactly the passageway that Sirius is using, and we will learn the true function of the willow and the shrieking shack on the other end. But we are all guilty of this kind of logic. When we want to do something, when we want to feel included, when we want to shed the negative emotions that have been clouding our days, we talk ourselves into the less safe or smart course because it makes us feel better. That's human nature. Harry's mind isn't the only thing that's swirling. The winter winds are as well, and Ron suggests— But not the winds of winter, George. Oh, my God. Wow. Finish the book. Ron suggests nipping into the three broomsticks where they order three foaming tankards of hot butterbeer. I love these descriptions. Harry drank deeply. Mm. It was the most delicious thing he had ever tasted and seemed to heat every bit of him from the inside. The bliss is fleeting. Harry looks up, and what does he see? Megalian, Flitwig, Hagrid— and Fudge? Quite a crowd. Fudge? What is Fudge doing here? He has, the Minister of Magic has nothing better to do than drink with Hagrid. Let's hang out in, in Hogsmeade with Megalian, with Megalian, Hagrid, and there's a conflict on the loose. He's just like, let's have a drink. Anyway, they sit and Rosmerda joins them. Hermione and Ron shove Harry under the table and Hermione magics a Christmas tree into a strategic position to make sure that no one can see Harry and Harry overhears their conversation. First, bit of humor. I did hear a rumor, admitted Madame Rosmerda. Did you tell the whole pub, Hagrid? <laughs> Aha, said Professor McGonagall, exasperated. Legend. McGallion is all about the tough love. And then things take a serious turn. Rosmerda says that Sirius is the last person she'd expect to go to the dark side. And Fudge says, 
You're one to talk, Rosemarna. Fudge says, the worst thing he did isn't widely known. Time to lean in, kids. What could be worse than murdering 13 people, you may ask? How about betrayal? How about betrayal of two of the most sainted figures in this story? Harry dropped his tankard with a loud clunk and Ron kicked him. McGonagall says how bright they were and what troublemakers to boot. Black and Potter, ringleaders of their little gang. And Flitwick says they were inseparable friends. That you'd have thought that they were brothers. Fudge says Potter trusted Black beyond all his other friends. Nothing changed when they left school. Black was best man when James married Lily. Then they named him Godfather to Harry. Harry has no idea, of course. You can imagine how the idea would torment him. And not just because Black turns, so they think, because Fudge says... The Potters knew you know who was after them. Huge info here, by the way. Prophecy foreshadowing all that. Dumbledore, Fudge says, had spies and one tipped them off. The agony of rereading this, knowing it was Snape, trying to protect Lily once he realized what harm the information he fed Voldemort could do. Dumbledore, of course, Fudge explains, told them to use the Fidelius charm. And fascinating bit of magic here. Very complex and actually hard to get your mind around in which, as Flitwick explains, a secret is concealed Inside of a person, quote, as long as the secret keeper refused to speak, you know who could search the village where Lily and James were staying for years and never find them. McGallion says that Black was the secret keeper, that James was sure Black would rather die than betray them. Dumbledore was sure someone on the inside had turned spy. And as we'll learn, he was right. It was Peter Pettigrew who was switched to secret keeper at the last moment. And that was their undoing. They're really describing Peter as they talk about Black. The book says, again, Black was tired of his double agent role. He was ready to clear his support openly for you-know-who, and he seems to have planned this for the moment of the Potter's death. Hagrid roars about comforting the traitor when he saw Black at the sight of James and Lily's death when he went to pick up Harry and got Sirius's motorbike with Sirius telling Hagrid he wouldn't need it anymore. We now know that he meant because he was going to make Peter pay for what he had done. But Fudge, of course, understands the events differently. They all do. The ministry didn't find Black, he tells them. Peter did. That fat little boy who was always tagging around them at Hogwarts, as Rosberta says, who, quote, hero worship Black and Potter, as McGallion says. Fudge says he still dreams about the horror of the scene. A crater in the street. Bodies everywhere. Black laughing. And, quote, a few fragments of Peter, a.k.a. the finger he cut off to fake his death. The finger that allowed Sirius to identify him as Scabbers in the Daily Prophet. A photo in a paper Fudge gave to Sirius upon his last visit to Askman. Fudge says, I was astounded at how little effect the Dementors seemed to be having on him. Fudge says, you know who alone and friendless is one thing, but give him back his most devoted servant, and I shudder to think of how quickly he'll rise again. And that is true. Only a year elapses between Pettigrew's return and Voli's return, or Crouch and Voli's return, but the point stands. Quote, Ron's and Hermione's faces appeared under the table. They were both staring at him, lost for words. Harry cannot know right now that what he's hearing is wrong. All he's processing is what he thinks, finally, is the truth. The reason that Mr. Weasley worried he'd run after Black. The reason Malfoy taunted him about what he'd do if it were him. People think that his father's best friend betrayed him, gave him and Lily to Voldemort, and then murdered Pettigrew. Harry was a baby when his parents died. All he knows of them, he's learned through other people and other things, through photos like the ones Hagrid has given him, through possessions like the cloak, and though he doesn't yet know it's his father's, the Marauder's Map, through the stories that get passed down about them. And this is now one of those stories. This is now the story. It informs so much of what Harry, to this point in his life, understands about his parents' lives 
and about their death. He's full of anger. He's full of despair. He's also full of a vicarious sort of shame because he's learning that they were betrayed by someone close enough to be a brother. And he's full of humiliation for himself because once again, again, he knows so much less about his own history and his own life than everyone else seems to. Mal, I solemnly swear that binge mode is up to no good. Truth. So help me manage this mischief. Please okay. toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about one of our absolute favorite magical items in the Harry Potter story, the Marauder's Map. Ah, the Marauder's Map. A super creepy surveillance tool if you think about it for too long. But if you can get past that, a thrillingly inventive magical object, and, as noted earlier, one of our absolute favorite creations in the entire story. Which of us in our teenage years wouldn't have craved such an aid for our own mischief-making? Which of us, even now, doesn't prop up the map's creation as a hallmark achievement, a testament to the power of creativity and commitment? It's also, of course, a testament to the power of friendship, as so many things in the Harry Potter saga are. That might seem odd to say in light of the Azkaban climax's Peter Pettigrew reveal, but his eventual betrayal doesn't change the fact that the map initially came to be because of the schoolboy bond between four besties. When James Potter, Sirius Black, and Pettigrew discovered that their pal Remus Lupin transformed into a werewolf once a month, they didn't say, tough beat and refresh their tweets, they learned how to become anime guy, unregistered, naturally, so that they could keep him safer and engaged. And Messer's Wormtail, a rat-faced rat, naturally, Padfoot, serious, a dog, and Prongs, James, a stag, were born. Much more on Anime Guy in future podcasts. As animals, they could fraternize with the transformed Mooney, Lupin, a werewolf, <laughs> and explore the grounds. Irresponsibly, maybe, but also unencumbered. That outdoors roaming, coupled with the ample in-castle surveying that James Potter's invisibility cloak allowed, facilitated the map's creation. And, as J.K. Rowling has noted on Pottermore, taught the Marauders more about the Hogwarts castle and grounds than perhaps any other pupils ever learned. Yes, even our trio. Like James's cloak, the map also became a bridge between generations, uniting Harry and his father, and in the map's case, his father's dearest friends, through a shared use and appreciation of a powerful and highly useful magical item. And make no mistake, it's as useful as it is because immensely skilled wizards built it. On Pottermore, JKR highlights the, quote, advanced and impressive magical ability of the Marauders, who used a homunculus charm to track those in the castle in dot form. If the Marauders weren't operating at this Hermione-esque level, Harry wouldn't be standing here. In chapter 10, watching Albus Dumbledore's dot pace in his study. The magic also includes dope activation and wiping phrases with I solemnly swear that I am up to no good and mischief managed becoming shorthand code words of recognition for Potterheads everywhere and excellent tattoo fodder to boot. The map is also programmed to guide would-be users. Per JKR in a 2005 interview with the Leaky Cauldron, shouts to the Leaky Cauldron, the map was, quote, flickering into life here and there when they they, meaning Fred and George, got closer and closer, and finally they hit upon the exact right word combination, and it just erupts. 
As we'll see in the next batch of chapters, it erupts in quite different fashion when Severus Snape, whom the map is programmed per JKR to repel and viciously insult, attempts to unearth its secrets. Unsurprisingly, Snape, nemesis of the map and the marauders alike, may have been responsible for Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs losing their precious property in the first place. We know from Fred and George's initiation conversation with Harry that they discovered the parchment in Filch's office in a drawer marked confiscated and highly dangerous. On Pottermore, JKR explained that Snape likely tipped off Filch in the first place. The map has more to do than worry about making jokes about Snape's greasy hair, though. In addition to showing the castle and grounds in exquisite detail and revealing the whereabouts of Hogwarts inhabitants, it shows the seven secret passageways into the castle, money dukes, which the marauders discovered during their many moonlit strolls. The map isn't blinded by invisibility cloaks, and unlike Dementors, it is not fooled by Polyjuice Potion or Animagus forms, revealing true identities, much to the homie Peter Pettigrew's chagrin. The map is fallible, however. It doesn't chart the rumor requirement or the Chamber of Secrets, though we don't know whether that's because the Marauders never discovered those spaces, unclear in the former case, reasonable to assume in the latter, or because those areas are unplottable. It also doesn't differentiate between people with the same name. What's up, Barty? That last fact, of course, is why Imposter Moody borrowed, a.k.a. confiscated, the map from Harry, recognizing it as a threat to his disguise. On Pottermore, J.K.R. addresses the regret that she at times carried over not using this plot point as an excuse to remove the map from Harry's life forever, saying, quote, The Marauder's map subsequently became something of a bane to its true originator, me, because it allowed Harry a little too much freedom of information. I never showed Harry taking the map back from the empty office of the supposed Mad-Eye Moody, and I sometimes regretted that I had not capitalized on this mistake to leave it there. End quote. We're not sorry that Harry got it back, of course, and neither in the end was J.K. saying, quote, however, I like the moment when Harry watches Ginny's dot moving around the school in Deathly Hallows, and so on balance, I am glad I let Harry reclaim his rightful property. As his continued use of the map, even after leaving the confines of the castle, reinforces, Harry turned to the Enchanted Wonder so often throughout the series, from using it to guide DA members to safety, to using it to try to suss out Draco's plans, to myriad other instances, that it became a character in its own right, serving central roles in numerous key plots, inspiring a simply stunning full ink and paper movie prop, with red ink, not green, but alas— and leading yours truly to drop a fair few galleons on a replica at the Wizarding World this summer. Crucially, though, I'm not the only one who's whispering an activating phrase into the parchment folds each night. In an interview on Bloomsbury.com, Rowling said that Harry never gave the map to his kids, but that she had a, quote, feeling that James, quote, sneaked it out of his father's desk one day. Well, in Cursed Child, the map is definitely in Harry's possession until, that is, he gives it to Minerva McGallion McGonagall herself with specific instructions to use it to spy on Harry's son, Albus. And we all thought illicit brooms were bad. Jason? Please, Mel. The werewolf differs from the true wolf in several small ways. That is the second time you've spoken out of turn. Five points for binge mode for being an insufferable know-it-all. I need you to focus because it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Azkaban chapters 6 through 10, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. When Dumbledore says, I must go down to the Dementors, I said I would inform them when our search is complete. And Percy says, didn't they want to help? Oh, yes, said Dumbledore coldly. 
but I'm afraid no Dementor will cross the threshold of this castle while I am headmaster. Tell that to Body Crouch Junior. Here's the thing. I love these descriptions of... It's the same thing that, you know, Fudge does it as well when it's like, I got to go talk to the Dementors. I can't picture someone having a conversation with the Dementors because there's so much, yeah, I got to go talk to the Dementors. They're they're asking me about this and that. It's like weird to think of them that way. Quick conversation. I open my mouth. They try to suck out my soul. (laughs) Right. It doesn't seem like it would go well. (laughs) I say expect a patronum, we part ways. I talk to them like across a field because literally I don't want to go near them. How do you talk to them? (laughs) Really great point. Number two, so much Lupin werewolf foreshadowing in this stretch, some of which we've already noted, but some other nuggets beyond that. When Lupin stops Harry from facing the bogger by calling it to him, quote, then they saw a silvery white orb hanging in the air in front of Lupin. That silvery white orb is, of course, the moon. Slightly later in that chapter, we also get Lavender saying, quote, I wonder why Professor Lupin's frightened of crystal walls. And of course, before their lesson on the way to the staff room, we see Peeves say to Lupin, Looney loopy lupin, loony yeah. loopy lupin, loony loopy lupin. Not a normal way to talk to a regular teacher, is That's it? Right. Then, after Snape's given Lupin the potion, Harry observes later at a feast yes. after Snape has given Lupin the potion, quote, was he imagining it or were Snape's eyes flickering toward Lupin more often than was natural? Harry thinks that this is because Snape wants Lupin dead, but Snape is surely watching for transformation signs also yes. he wants him dead it's <laughs> he's only training the kids how to kill him <laughs> it's notable also that we don't yet know at this point in the book that his first name is remus that's right rj those are the initials on the briefcase and they're calling him professor lupin we won't learn about the name first name remus until later in the book because of course that's a massive clue remus is both the name of a moon and also one of the two twins in the story of remus and romulus the founders of rome who were raised by wolves that's right number three speaking of lupin and snape we've also discussed the signs of marauder history already but here are a couple more great bits of specific foreshadowing first lupin Speaking to Harry, they planted the Whomping Willow the same year that I arrived at Hogwarts. People used to play a game trying to get near enough to touch the trunk. In the end, a boy called Davy Gudgeon nearly lost an eye and we were forbidden to go near it. No broomstick would have a chance. Indeed, they planted it, as we'll learn, because of Lupin. Uh And then Ron says, why couldn't Black have hidden in Snape's office? eh? He could have finished him off for us. Like Ron's joke about Riddle and Myrtle. He's closer to the truth of the past here than he realizes. Sirius nearly killed Snape with a werewolf prank when they were boys, a key moment in Snape's lifelong hate of the group. Yes. What a hilarious joke. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. You understand why Snape is like, fuck all these people. Very tough stuff. (laughs) Number four. The initial portrayal of Cedric, though it seems minor now, actually reflects quite directly how Harry will view him in Goblet of Fire when Cedric is a main figure. First, in Azkaban in these chapters, Harry hears how attractive Cedric is, paralleling the Cedric Cho Yuval angst. Then, Harry hears how formidable Cedric is as a Quidditch opponent, paralleling Cedric battling Harry to the end of the Triwizard tasks. And finally, he hears an aside about how Cedric was honorable and wanted to redo the match after Harry's fall, paralleling the honorable, though of course ultimately tragically misguided intent of them sharing the win, sharing the cup at the end. Speaking of the Triwizard Tournament, when Lupin invites Harry in to make him tea, he shows Harry a Grindelow. The next year, during the second task, High K Hill, something underwater, oh my God. Grindelows <laughs> will attack Fleur Delacour and cause her early retirement from the second task. Also... 
in Hallows, in Deathly Hallows, that moment is what Lupin asks Harry about when they're trying to confirm each other's identities. What creature sat in the corner the first time that Harry Potter visited my office at Hogwarts? Key moment. Number five, tons and tons of clues that something is going on with time. There isn't enough time. (laughs) I'll manage. I fix it all with Professor McGonagall. Incredible phrasing here. McGee is always (laughs) here to fix things. Always. Hermione's friends push. How can you be in three classes at once? By the way, why can't she tell them? I, I don't get that part. I actually don't understand that. Like, Harry tells Ron and Hermione basically everything. Yeah. Hermione can't be like, I'm taking extra classes. It's all fixed with the ministry. I do, I do kind of wonder if it's not a like a, an Adderall metaphor. Like I guess. An- we'll save the whole <laughs> McGonagall gave her a time turner to go to class more discussion yeah. for later. Yes. Later, Ron says... What's she talking about? She hasn't been to an arithmetic class yet. Uh, yes, she has. Indeed, she has. And then later, Hermione was panting slightly, hurrying up the stairs, one hand clutched to her bag. The other seemed to be tucking something down the front of her robes. Jesus. <laughs> Ron notes she's carrying books for subjects she doesn't have that day. And she's always talking about how starving she is yeah. because it's extra hours. Also, speaking of Hermione, she appears during the match to put the impervious charm on Harry's glasses to keep the water at bay. Is this precisely legal? I've always wondered about this. It's unclear what is kosher on the Quidditch pitch. Maybe that's why McGallion is like, this helps. This will help. <laughs> like, you can't take Felix Felicis because having extra luck right, would it's be PEDs. Illegal. Clearly PED. But you can use, this feels to me like a corked bat. It does feel very Enhanced much like equipment. I agree. You're, you shouldn't be able to do it. Or like pine tar on the ball. Yeah, it's a, definitely a loophole. I yeah. love the description of Wood, like with his throaty voice calling out to Hermione. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. <laughs> Lupin says during the Bogart lesson, quote, nobody knows what a Bogart looks like when he is alone. But we're just wondering, is this totally true? Wood, Mad-Eye, Moody. In Order of the Phoenix, Molly asks Moody to use his magical eye to look up into the desk in Grimmauld Place and confirm that there's a Boggart in there, which he's able to do. In that moment, is Moody seeing the Boggart in its pure form? Fun to wonder about that. Maybe one day we'll get an answer. Also, speaking of Boggarts, Ron says to Hermione, who, again, did not get to face the Boggart, what would it have been for you, said Ron, sniggering, a piece of homework that only got 9 out of 10? Wow. Again, Ron is not far off the mark here, even though he's being a dick, because in her defense against the dark arts practical exam at the end of the year, that's in essence what happens. Hermione panics facing the Boggart, and when she explains to Lupin what went wrong, she says that the Boggart McGallion told her she failed every subject. Number seven. When Ron's trying to read Harry's tea leaves in their first divination lesson, he says, A windfall. Unexpected gold. Excellent. You can lend me some. (laughs) Amazing. Unbelievable. That's not like a great shot. Don't expect Harry to lend you a fucking centron. Yeah, that's not a canut. Literally will never, ever happen. He watched you use a spellotaped wand for an entire year. <laughs> Excellent. You can lend some to my parents who are poor and yeah. give you room and board and whose car you crashed. Shared their food with you that they literally can't afford. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I mean, that's tough. Tough stuff, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Teach a man to fish and, you know, what they say. <laughs> Mal, well, 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 I'm impressed. This podcast outlang suggests that what you fear most of all is fear. It's not that, believe me. <laughs> Very wise. I know today's champion would think so. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to Remus R.J. Lupin. 
RJ Lupin for now, since we don't yet know the etymological significance of that loaded first name. But what a stretch of chapters for Lupin. First of all, he shoots a lot of chewing gum into Peeves' nose, eliciting a cool sir from Dean. When Snape bullies Neville, Lupin rallies to Neville's side, says he believes in him, he guides Neville, he gives him confidence, and Neville ultimately succeeds. That's a big deal. This is a key moment in Neville's arc, and Lupin's responsible for it. His Bogart lesson is so good. He earns best Defense Against the Dark Art lesson labeled from Ron and seems like a very good teacher from Hermione, who's a tough grader. Yes. Very, very tough grader. Huge praise then after two years of basically absolutely useless Defense Against the Dark Arts tutelage. Quiets Harry's doubts, making him tea, giving him time and attention, explaining very thoughtfully the thinking behind the various decisions he made, which... You forget about when you're an adult, but as a child, that is very helpful when you're a child to have an adult explain very calmly how they came to a certain decision. And he's honest with Harry about why he didn't let him face the bogger. When Snape attempts to dunk on him in his own classroom, the students all rally to Lupin's defense. Dean says he's the best defense against dark arts teacher we've ever had. Everyone is already on his side, basically, overnight. When he returns to health, he comforts Harry about what happened at the match and promises to teach Harry how to defend himself. He is, in total, yes. an excellent teacher, an increasingly trusted confidant, and deft at making these pretty fragile youngsters feel supported and understood. Shouts to Lupin. Yeah. Well— You look in excellent health to us, friends, so you will excuse us if we don't let you off binge mode today. We assure you that if Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, die, they need not contribute to the next episode. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing chapters 11 through 15 of Prisoner of Azkaban. Until then, remember, be of stout heart. The worst is yet to come. Which of you can tell me how we distinguish between the werewolf and the true wolf? Anyone? Are you telling me that (coughs) Professor Lupin, even he, has not taught you the basic distinction between the werewolf and the true wolf? Uh, We haven't really gotten... That's like very advanced. Quiet! (laughs) Ask Lupin... About werewolves! <laughs> when next you see him! All right, take out your quills. This is how you make a silver potion to kill a werewolf. <laughs>